Be home before Mama, the only rule that young Justin had to live by. At 13 years old in 1989, making money was difficult for some, but not for Justin. Mowing the neighbor's lawns and even completing odd jobs kept a little bit of cash into his small hand. Justin lived in a small neighborhood. His home nestled into the blue-collar community, just the other side of the tracks in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The summer of 1989, everything would change for the district. A single mother who worked hard for her children would come home and find that her son, the one to always obey her number one rule, was missing. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight we're going to dive into the world of what was once a cold case, but now we know it was a case of many. Making the perpetrator the second serial killer in the city of Tulsa, Oklahoma. From a boy who craved to know what death was, to a man still captivated by the death of young children, one can argue that if Wayne Henry Garrison was around, he was the easy scapegoat due to his past. But contrary to what you believe, it's the last known victim of Garrison, the one he would take the last breath of, that would haunt him no matter how far he went or how long it had been. Justice would come knocking just when he thought he was free. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of murder, mutilation, and adult language. Listeners, discretion is advised. If you feel this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen for you or with you. Good evening, all of my true crime nerds out there. Tonight, I wanted to bring you into a case that I had just recently learned about. And the more I dug into the case, the more captivated I was with this. And it's because, you know, let me just say that you can go on Netflix and you can watch um, Cold Case Files. I think it's season one, episode two. And it's just like the first 15, 20 minutes of the episode. And then they go into another case. But when you watch that, you're so drawn to everything because it shows you like forensic photograph and how they nailed down certain things. And it's interesting. It really is. It, I love seeing how they eventually are able to crack the cold cases and, and find their perpetrator. And this was interesting because it wasn't so much that they didn't have an idea. No. See, the person that they are focused on is somebody who has a past within the community. He has a reputation. And as soon as his name comes up in investigation, they're like, hold up. Did you just say? And it, it's just mind blowing. But he seemed to slip through their fingers at every turn. So the more I looked into this, the more I looked into the past and what happened after the case went cold. And once you put all of these parts together, I mean, you have the 
McDonald triad of serial killers. Okay. So for those of you who do not know what the McDonald triad is, is you have persistent bedwetting and that's into even later years of childhood. Then you have violent behaviors to animals and typically they're killing animals and dissecting them and they just want to know how it ticks. But the third is very interesting because they have this fascination with starting fires. Those are the three things that McDonald said that one must possess to be a serial killer. Now we've had several serial killers who did not fascinate with fire at a young age, but they had the other two problems going on. And then, I mean, it does, you don't have to have all three. That doesn't mean, you know, that's not, this isn't making a serial killer, okay? This is what are the behaviors that are typically seen in the younger years of a serial killer. And we've looked at this, we've tested this. I mean, we looked at Bundy and Dahmer and Gacy. We went through some of these big killers, BTK, Green River Killer. You have all of these well-known serial killers and they've all had at least two of that triad. And that's where FBI was like, okay, these things, these behavioral things, psychological things are what we see when making a serial killer, okay? He's not your typical. The one I'm going to introduce you tonight is not your typical serial killer. He didn't get some famous or infamous uh, media coverage because the way he did it was methodical. And you look at pictures of this guy and you immediately think there's some mental deficits there. But the more you look into the case and the more you learn, you start to change your mind. You're thinking, okay, maybe he doesn't have mental deficits. Maybe he's very clever. And he is. He's had time to perfect his craft. Okay. Wayne Henry Garrison. From what I can find, he was born in 1959. I don't have an exact birth date. That seems to be stricken from most of the records I looked at. I mean, I looked through his appeal and I looked through you know, the sentencing and the trial, I looked through everything I could come up with and none of it seemed to pinpoint down his birthday, but that's fine. You know, I'm, I'm not focused on that. I just want to give you a little bit of their background and usually their birth date is something I want to give you. But here we are. At 13, Wayne Garrison was in the custody of his grandmother, Minnie Sperry, and she had raised the boy and he was a little different, but you know, she didn't think it was horrible. He was your typical teenage boy. You know, he needs his ass beat once in a while to stay in line. But this particular thing really kind of threw his grandmother over the edge. He had begged Minnie for a white rabbit. And I picture this and I picture it because during that time, white rabbits were very prominent in magician shows. And so in my mind, I see that he is selling his grandmother that he wants one for that purpose. But really, he has another purpose. So his grandmother finally caves and goes and gets Garrison, this white rabbit. When she gets up the next morning, the animal's dead. He had broke his neck. And she bit the tar out of him. I mean, beat him up one side and down the other. 
And that's during a time where people would be like, you want me to help you whip your child? I'll help you. Not now where we're, you know, you raise your voice and 40 other people have an opinion on how you raise your child. But another day, different topic. Garrison also had typical, no, not typical. This is not, nothing about him is typical. Let me just start there. Nothing. But when you're looking at the triad, he was hurting animals even as a teenager. Garrison had cut off the head of a dog with a rusty knife and maybe should have gave out a trigger warning before this started. Um, but if you're going to listen to killers, most likely they've harmed animal in the beginning. So not that we are numb to it, but the educated ones who really look into true crime, they see animal cruelty across the board. Okay. Garrison would also poke chickens with a sharp stick until they were nearly dead. So he just went out there and started poking the chickens. Just like, here's my stick. and Jab, jab, jab. Until the chicken was like, you know, screw this. Uh, I give up. Garrison never really would admit to his grandmother that he had done anything wrong with these animals. He always said that he didn't do it. But, I mean, your dog's head gets cut off. The rabbit's neck is broke. You're poking chickens. We're seeing this pattern develop, okay? It doesn't matter if he admits to something. That doesn't matter to him. He's deny, deny, deny. You know, he couldn't control himself. There's a side of his brain that seemed fascinated by the act of doing these bad things and seeing how far he could take things. And this never truly goes away in this case. He constantly has this need to learn but unfortunately, he needs to learn about death. That's all he wants to learn about. October 31st of 1972, Garrison was playing with his four-year-old cousin, Dina Dine Dean. They were playing at her house. And they were playing hide-and-go-seek. And, you know, they were just typical things. But he was being a cousin. Or so we thought. Garrison, during their playtime, during their hide-and-seek, took a 12-inch light blue cloth and he placed it around her neck. He then knotted it and began applying pressure, harder and harder and harder. When the four-year-old fell unconscious, he continued until eventually he strangled her and she took her last breath. He was 13. This was family. She was four. There was no fighting back in this. There wasn't any of any of that going on. You know, four-year-olds are very concrete. We're very, you're playing with me. This is fun. You know, oh, I don't think about the thing that you just put around my neck. They don't think like that. So unfortunately, he took the life of his four-year-old cousin, Dina. It is said that there was something kind of in his mind craving the kill. And animals, they just weren't providing him with the adrenaline, the stimulation that he wanted. And so, at, I mean, at 13 years old, he graduated to killing a child. Garrison dragged the body of his four-year-old cousin into the crawl space below his grandmother's house. And that's where he left her cold and alone. Garrison, at 13, he's still kind of in that realm of concrete, and critical thinking is just now starting to occur in his brain. So, but he thought, 
out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. If I don't see it, it didn't happen. And that's where he was. Eventually, the Tulsa Police Departments were called out and Garrison led them exactly to where Dina's body was. He claimed that it was an accident and he got scared and he drug her under there. He put on his puppy dog eyes and sold what he thought was a convincing story. In reality, Tulsa investigator Larry Johnson knew that this was not an accidental killing. This was purposeful. He did this intentionally. And he said, quote, the thing I noticed and the thing that bothered me was the lack of remorse that he had for her death. He tried to make it look like an accident, but it wasn't an accident. She had bite marks on her body, end quote. In the 1970s, juveniles were tried in juvenile court. It wasn't until they saw a rise in juveniles committing crimes, you know, murder, aggravated burglary, uh, gang activity, things like that in the late 80s into the early 90s that juveniles began to be tried in the adult court. And some of them were tried as adults, depending on their age. But in the 70s, Wayne Garrison lucked out and he was tried in juvenile court. For the murder of his four-year-old cousin. And on December 22nd, 1972, the court and the parents of Dina and the Garrison defense team ruled that Garrison would receive more help and supervision from being institutionalized at Central Griffin Memorial State Hospital in Norman, Oklahoma. So this was a mental hospital for the criminally insane, and that's kind of where they thought Garrison was. There was just something off about him enough that they felt that reform would not happen inside of a juvenile detention center. He would get better care from the supervision and the directional programs out at the state hospital. So Garrison went out there, he was evaluated, and then they treated him accordingly to the outcome of that psychological evaluation. Now, it's important to note that there was never a definitive diagnosis with Wayne Garrison. He just was able to turn a switch and become either a master genius, kind of in the way that he ticked, into being helpless and almost almost idiotic. He, he would make himself just be dumber to fool people. And that's sad that he used that as a ploy to kind of get out of things. Now, there's not a whole lot outside of this criminal past of Garrison. You don't learn too much about, you know, how he lived every other day other than the day he killed a child. You don't know. But the older he gets, I can see it in some of the photographs of him. He stands there and he looks like a person who should be institutionalized. You can see the lack of intelligence that he portrays. However, his crimes prove otherwise. So for me, as I dig into this, and I guess as a, you know, a true crime nerd, I automatically kind of sense manipulation off of people. Um, and I was watching something today with Ted Bundy, and it was the last interview. And I just thought, you think you're being clever, but people can see through that, right? I'm wrong. Not everybody sees through it. Maybe, I don't know, maybe because I enter into these cases and I expect manipulation. 
is why I'm able to be like, you're conniving. And how come nobody saw that? You know, that's where Garrison's at. I mean, he's being institutionalized. He's being treated, but he's never formally diagnosed with a psychological disorder. So it makes you wonder. In June of 1974, a writ of probation was filed. The state was trying to turn around and now try the 14-year-old Wade Garrison as an adult in the murder of Dana Dean. Ultimately, it was ordered that Garrison would not stand in adult court and be tried as an adult for the murder for two reasons. One, it fell into that faint gray line of double jeopardy. He had kind of already been tried to the fact that everybody agreed he needed to be institutionalized, okay? So he admitted guilt and then was institutionalized. Well, you, in the United States of America, you cannot be tried twice for the same crime. We have several crimes like OJ, you know, you, you can't go back after you've already, you know, a jury of their peers have already deemed them something else. Okay. So there he fell for there. Now, number two was he would need to testify as to what happened on October 31st. And this would be breaking the Fifth Amendment, and he would have to self-incriminate, which you cannot force on a person, no matter how we feel. One cannot pressure another into standing up under oath and incriminating themselves. You can't do that. You can't force that. Now, can you beat around the bush until eventually you work their way into self-incrimination? Yeah, prosecution and defense, both of them are very good about doing that in their questioning. And it raises doubt in juries. So, you, I mean, there's a way around that. But for right now in the 70s, we're looking at these two things. And neither one of those can happen because of the prior agreement with Dina and the family and the defense and the prosecution. So it was ordered that Wayne Garrison would stay under the care of Central Griffin Memorial State Hospital. Now, on June 3rd, as all of this is going on, Garrison was granted a pass to go home and visit his grandmother for a little bit from the institution. This doesn't mean he's out. This is like furlough, but there wasn't like a family tragedy or something that occurred for them to grant it. They were just the doctor thought that Garrison was at a point that he could go home for just a couple days and it would be okay. So Minnie had custody of Garrison, his grandmother, when he came home for this small visit. And then shortly after he came home, the neighbor boy, Craig Brandon Neal, he was three. He went missing. Four days after Craig's disappearance, Tulsa PD Officer Martin Van was told by Garrison that he and Craig had been playing a game of hide-and-go-seek, and during their game, Garrison admitted that he was smothered. Now, I found a report where it's a trash bag, and I found a report where it's a dry cleaner's bag, but does it really matter? It's a plastic bag. Garrison gets Craig to go into this bag, and he ties up both ends, and it effectively cuts off that airflow and this is why there's a disclaimer on plastic bags that small children should not be left alone unsupervised with them because they can suffocate. But Craig didn't suffocate himself accidentally. Garrison was there to make sure he could block off both ends, cutting off the airflow and smothering the child. 
Once he passed, Garrison said that he dragged the boy underneath the front porch of his grandmother's home, and that's where they found him. And when they recovered the body, the young boy's penis had been severed, and it was nowhere to be found. No one knows what happened to the dismembered appendage. Now, here's a couple things. Some say that he admitted to this mutilation, saying he took a rusty kitchen knife and cut off the boy's penis, but where the penis went, he did not know. And other report says he went back to that old deny, 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 and he never admitted to the mutilation. Either way, neither one's good. He, it's a three-year-old boy. That is sexually driven murder, pent-up frustration. And I don't care what anybody says. When you do that to a small child, it's not to humiliate. Not this time. This was a sexual desire inside of Garrison. It's never identified, by the way, why he did this. He, it just did. So here we are. Garrison's 14. He's taken the life of two children, Dina, age four, Craig, age three. There was no mutilation to Dina other than the bite marks. And I couldn't find anywhere where if Garrison had done the bite marks with Craig. I don't know. I couldn't find that that was part of Craig's murder and investigation. But anyways, Garrison's 14. He's taken the lives of two children. One, while he was serving time for the first one. Wayne Garrison would plead guilty to second-degree manslaughter in Craig's death, and he was sentenced to four years inside the state penitentiary. So they decided, um, we let you go home, and you still killed somebody, so now we kind of have to make you go to prison, right? Well, in the end, Garrison avoided being tried as an adult because we are still in the 70s. So he did not have to be tried as an adult with Dina. He was not tried as an adult for Craig, but he had to face more adult-like consequences with that second murder. Now, Craig's father ended up filing a lawsuit that involved everybody, the PD, the grandmother, Wayne, the doctor, everybody. If you looked in the direction of this investigation, Craig's father had a lawsuit against you. Now, it was ruled by the judge that no one could be sued other than those directly involved with allowing Garrison, a boy with a troubled and obvious psychiatric shortcoming, leave the facility and put him back into a community, even if it was only for a short time. Garrison needed 10 minutes with Craig. That's all it was going to take, 10 minutes to commit this heinous crime against this young child. Dr. Sullivan was able to be sued. He was the gentleman that let Garrison go home. Minnie was sued. Garrison was sued. Those three people, the judge allowed the lawsuits for. Everybody else, Craig's father had to withdraw the lawsuit. Now, Dr. Sullivan is reported to either not caring or just lack the common intelligence to know that allowing Garrison to enter back into society before he was properly treated gave him the opportunity to commit this second murder. I don't know. Where, I mean, if at the institution he portrayed a child who understood that he had done wrong with Dina, then continued to convince Dr. Sullivan that he was getting better. He was showing remorse. He was showing the responsibility of 
doing what he did with his cousin. All of that could lead up to this kind of visit, furlough, whatever you want to call it, I guess. But in the back of my mind, once they enter into a criminally insane institution like a state hospital, I find it really hard that they would let one go home. Now, I've actually done some student time inside of the local state hospital here. And here, the juveniles are on one side of the campus and the adults are on the other. And then everybody is classified differently. Some of the teenagers were allowed to attend a class which constituted as their school. And others had to be more one-on-one. -on -one. They couldn't be in a large group because they were still acting out, as you could say. But it was also a place where parents who could no longer control their children could commit their children and kind of get them some help. And these teenagers are not necessarily psychologically disabled. Okay, some of them just have disorders like ADHD, behavioral ODD, you know, just very defiant behaviors. But you see that a lot in a child who I don't want to say was neglected because that's not the word. Typically, you see that in a child who somehow developed this I'll do what I want whenever I want kind of thing. It's not necessarily the parenting that happens, but it's the environment that they are in. Some of these teens, you know, they had siblings who were older and were out committing crimes. And unfortunately for parents, that's our worst fear. But it happens because Garrison was somebody's son. Bundy was somebody's son. Dahmer. Everybody came from a parent. And so it's not necessarily the parenting. If you're one of those who kind of sits there and says, well, maybe if they'd have been stricter, he'd have been different. That's not necessarily true. Just want to point that out. Sometimes, yes, give them a good old-fashioned spanking, but sometimes there needs to be a different approach. And children tend to shut down towards mom and dad because they don't want them to know exactly what's going on because they're afraid there will be consequences. But when you put them in an institution and around people who are not a parent figure but more of an adult figure, and they feel like they're part of an adult conversation, they're more willing to open up. Now on the other side of campus, you have your criminally insane and they are ranked from, you know, low potential to commit crimes against each other inside the institution to high levels of high risk. Um, and those were some of the harder places to be during this education, uh, just to see how mentally broken people could be, but still very violent. You, you never knew. Garrison, to me, did not fit being in an institution for that second murder. He knew what he did. He knew he was taking the life of that child. And then he mutilated him. And I don't care if you're 14 or 6. That's a harsh crime. It deserves harsh consequences. Just my opinion. Now, in March of 1977, Wayne Garrison was able to step out of prison and Art Leck, his defense attorney for the Craig murders and the Dina murder, he helped 18-year-old Garrison enroll in high school and it was just in time for prom, okay? Garrison at this point is looking just to fit in and his defense attorney is going to help him. And he's really kind of a mentor to Garrison through his younger years as an, you know, a teenager and a young adult, he needs a little bit of guidance because he's been locked away for 
you know, four years of his life, five years of his life. Things change. You don't realize how quickly they do. Because for those of us that see the small changes daily, we don't see the the big change as one would see it from their point of view. Garrison ends up asking a girl to prom and she says yes. So he pulls outside this Tulsa home. It's a family that's known to have oil money. And in Texas and Oklahoma, oil money tends to be old money. Um, and you're raised with it. And this girl was raised to be this way. And as Garrison climbs her steps, he straightens his tie and knocks on the front door. But instead of this beautiful prom date, he is met with a very angry father. He swings the front door open. He has a pistol in his hand. And he starts screaming at Garrison, saying, You're not taking out my daughter. I found out about you. Get the fuck out of here. It's what he was told. And Garrison's crushed because he, he got out just in time for prom. Somebody agreed to go with him. He finally was starting to fit back into society. And for this to occur, it just crushed him. You know, he ended up going to Fleck and, and talking to him about this occurrence. And they just, had I, had he not ever done another crime, I might have empathy here. But I know the rest of the story, so I lack the empathy, I guess. I don't know. Garrison, at 18, he had a reputation and it found its way into the community and they know exactly who he was. Garrison then drove out to the lake and he parked after this, this confrontation with his date's father. And he says there he contemplated killing himself, committing suicide. And the funny thing about this is he never contemplated committing suicide when he took the life of his cousin. He never contemplated suicide when he took the life of Craig. He was now sitting there contemplating suicide because he didn't fit in. Morality is really jacked up with Garrison. At some point, Garrison ends up married and they have a son. Now, the gossip of the rumor mill is Garrison did eventually marry the girl whose father was completely freaked out with him in his past. Um, she, his, his wife, Garrison's wife or ex-wife, she's done very well to hide herself from the media and her son from the media. Um, I don't think she really realized who she said I do to when they married, or maybe she did, maybe she knew about his past and she's far more forgiving than I am. I don't know. And in 1989, Garrison's living in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's living on the other side of the tracks in the blue collar district. You know, those people down there, they were working hard for the little bit of money they did have. Now, Garrison owned a little automotive body shop called Choppers, and he was making decent money for his family. A local boy and a neighbor who lived about five houses down, but on the same block, Justin Wiles, was hanging out at the shop and he would ask Garrison you know if he could do just real odd jobs around the shop to kind of make a little extra cash. Justin came from a single mother. He had an older sister and his mother worked two jobs. She worked very hard to support their family and the only rule she really had in 1989 was be home before she was. Now for those of us who grew up in the 80s I can remember, you know, having to be home by the time the streetlights got on. You know, we just, 
it wasn't, I could go all day without seeing my mom and dad and there was never any worry. You know what I'm saying? Like my mom didn't, she wasn't flooded with relief when I walked through the door. Nine times out of 10, it was go wash your hands. Let's get ready to eat. We just had a different raising and I raised my children different. You know, uh, they, mm, I can't go a whole lot of time without checking in on my children. Um, they definitely don't just get to run amok around our community. I'm just, I guess I'm a helicopter mom, I guess you could say. But again, I am a true crime nerd. So I kind of know the evils that are out there. And I don't want to fall victim to any of them. Maybe that's what it is. Oh. Now, Justin, he was a good kid. He pulled his weight around the home. And he would go out into the neighborhood. And he would help people around. I mean, they worked hard for their money. But that also meant that that hard work meant they may not always get to the chores around the house that they needed to. So here's Justin, the sweet kid, very polite, just walking through the neighborhood. Hey, you need your lawn mowed? I'll mow your lawn for, you know, $2. It kept cash in his hand, which means he didn't have to ask his mother for anything. So it kind of helped his mom out in the long run. That's where Justin was. Now, his mother, Dorothy, she's very strict on that number one rule, be home before she got home. And Justin obeyed it strictly. He may test his mother's patience in other times, but when it came to this rule, he always followed this rule. Now, on June 20th of 1989, Justin failed to follow that number one rule. He didn't make it home when his mother got home from work. And according to Justin's sister, he was asleep when she left to go to the store about 11.30 a.m. And when she got back around noon, he was gone. And she couldn't find him. Now, Justin's mother knew something was wrong. I mean, he was a kid who was tried and true to this, this rule. And so, with him not coming home like he should, she immediately knew something was wrong. And she went to the Tulsa Police Department. And the detectives told her, you know, teenage boys, when they go missing, generally, it's because they want to. Give it a day and see if he shows back up. Well, Justin didn't come back. He wasn't there the next day. So Dorothy went down and she filed a missing persons report. And the only reason it was filed as a missing persons than something else is because there was no evidence of like an abduction or foul play. Nothing more really could be done. They put out a bolo, be on the lookout for a runaway 13-year-old male named Justin Wiles. Four days go by. And on June 24th of 1989, around 7 a.m., 31 to about 32 miles away from Tulsa, which is about a 45-minute drive, sits Lake Bixhoma. And a fisherman out at Lake Bixhoma called the Bixby police and said he had stumbled upon a hand. And they show an image of this hand. It is sticking up out of the mud just right there on the bank of the lake. And it's almost zombie-like looking because the hand's kind of curled. Like it dug its way out from this mud. And you can see only about four fingers. And it's from the knuckles up. So you don't even get like the palm or the thumb. It's just the fingers. And so the police officer, he arrives. And he starts digging in the mud around these fingers. He was eventually able to uncover an entire arm. It was a small arm. And he knew it was part of a child's body. And it was detached from the arrest. 
And so they call in investigators and divers dive the lake and Bixby police, they just kind of flood that area. And as they're looking around, they're approached by a couple more fishermen who were out at Lake Vixoma the night before. And they're in one of those little coves off the lake. And they said, you know, it was a mannequin head. It wasn't a real head. It was mannequin. It didn't look real. But it didn't matter. Investigators are like, well, take us to the cove and let us see. And so they get over to this cove where the fishermen were talking about. And right there on the very surface of the water was a human head dark hair couldn't really make out the details of the face and when it was recovered the head had been severed from the torso and it was tied with copper wire to a rock now intentionally that rock was supposed to hold the head below the surface of the water but air trapped within the blood and the vessels and things like that that's what make things make body parts float and so this head just, it floated just enough to break the surface water. And nobody had called because they thought it was fake. But there we have an arm of a child and the obvious head of a child. Investigators, they're standing on the bank, kind of waiting to see what the divers can find in the lake. And they notice when the wind blows just right, there's this awful smell. A couple of the investigators said that this was the smell of death. I have never personally smelled the smell of death, but, you know, from everything you hear in true crime, you know that smell the very first time you smell it. So investigators are smelling the smell as the wind blows, and they follow it into where the tree line kind of breaks off the bank of the lake, and there's this pile of rocks right before you break into the tree and the brush. They uncover under that pile of rocks a torso in a black trash bag. It seems to be the torso of a child, and his genitals have been removed. In the end, they recover one head, obviously a torso, an arm, and I want to say one of the legs, but I'm not for sure on that completely. The autopsy is sealed as this is a juvenile, so you can't really find too many reports on the autopsy, but it is very apparent they had found a missing child. Now, back in Tulsa, Sergeant Mark McKenzie, he gets his hands on some of the medical examiner's photographs from the autopsy, and one of the things stands out about this body. Behind both of the ears, there are surgical scars. Now, when Dorothy had to file the missing persons report, you are asked if there are any identifying birthmarks, scars, tattoos that could help them easily identify the person. And she had put down that Justin had two surgical scars behind his ears due to an illness he had had as a child. So they get out there and they look and they're able to identify the parts of the body belonging to Justin Wiles and the Tulsa PD take over the investigation from Bixie as they it's now part of their jurisdiction. When Tulsa medical examiner got a chance to look at the body, neither them or the Bixby medical examiner could determine the cause of death due to the amount of mutilation. Sergeant Wayne Allen took over Justin Wiles' case. 
and they begin talking to other people in the neighborhood, trying to pin down what Justin had done on the day he disappeared. Like I said, the neighborhood knew Justin. He mowed lawns. He did odd jobs. You know, they needed help around. He he was there for a little bit of cash. Justin helped. And they weren't getting anywhere with what happened the day of June 20th. Nobody really knew where Justin went in that 30-minute window. Back at the police department, others are sitting around discussing the case, kind of just playing off each other, trying to figure out where they're going to start. And one of the names from one of the neighbors came up, Wayne Garrison. And they're talking about Justin going down to the shop and doing odd jobs down at Choppers. Now, one of the more seasoned investigators who was in the room immediately stopped conversation and said, did you just say Wayne Garrison? And the young detective said yes. And the seasoned detective said he killed two kids in the 70s. Immediately, the entire team hunkers down. They have their first credible suspect in the case of Justin Wiles's murder. And so they start, they go from trying to figure out where to start to how to start getting the evidence to kind of trace back to Garrison. And Art Fleet, Garrison's defense attorney that's kind of helped him through everything as a younger kid, he claims that Tulsa police could never forget that Garrison had caused the death of two children when he was a juvenile. And therefore, they used him for the scapegoat in the case of Justin Wiles. Easy target. His name came up. They knew of the past. Bam. Suspect. That's what his defense attorney says. However, when they start digging in, things start lining up. Garrison is eventually brought in for an interview, and he is Tulsa PD's first and most credible suspect in this case. And they sit down and they start talking to Garrison about how he knew Justin. And he said, you know, he, you know, he lived in my neighborhood. He'd swing by the auto body shop. He'd sweep. He'd take trash out. Things like that. He was a good kid. Now, Garrison is knowingly admitting to knowing Justin. They don't ask too much after this. This dumbass, because that's what he is, he starts volunteering information. And one of the things he volunteers is he'd like to go fishing out at Lake Bixoma. Now, investigators say that not many of them knew about Lake Bixoma prior to this case. And for that, I have a little bit of a hard time believing. Because in Texas and Oklahoma, I mean, we're not far from each other. Going to the lake, state park, fishing, things like that. We kind of know our area. Like my family, we enjoy a state park. And it's about 35 minutes from my house. It's well known. And from the size of this lake on the map, Lake Bixoma has a state park as well. It should be known to the residents of Tulsa. You know, at least been heard of, but investigators say they've never heard about it, never mentioned it, not even an inkling in that direction when Wayne Garrison volunteered the information. So, dumbass put himself at the scene of the crime. When investigators start asking Garrison whether or not he had seen Justin on the day of June 20th, Garrison goes back to the tried and true deny, deny, deny. 
He even becomes frustrated with the investigators a time or two during the questioning. He's sick and tired of having the finger pointed at him. But this is all volunteer, so eventually Garrison is allowed to leave. However, the police department investigators, they ask if they can take some photographs of Garrison before he leaves. And he agrees. The thing that gets me is he he's so willing to be right there in their face. Like, I killed this kid and you can't prove it. And you want me to come down and talk to you? I'll come down and talk to you. You want me to put myself at the scene of crime? I'll put myself at the scene of crime. You want some photographs? Have some photographs. You have nothing on me. And back in 1989, DNA and forensic and our advancement and some of that technology had not quite been there. And so at the time, serial killers are more worried about leaving behind fingerprints. They're worried about leaving behind stray hairs. They're not necessarily thinking about the DNA, okay? Garrison's there. He's not thinking about DNA. He's just like, you can't pinpoint me. Nothing. You have nothing on me. There's, what are you going to do? Copper wire's mine? No, not mine. Couldn't be. I don't own a body shop at all. So in the end, Garrison offers up some photographs, smiles pretty for the camera, and then they take a photograph of his right forearm. There is a bruise located on the forearm, and when you see the photograph, it's very grainy because it is the 1980s, and they're you know, they didn't have the pixels that we have now. Some of our cameras are, if you would have taken a picture with something we have now, you would be able to look at it and be like, holy crap, I don't know what that is. But when you're looking at this very grained photograph, you have to strain your eyes to kind of see what it is. Now, when they ask him how he got this injury, he says that him and his brother Paul had gotten into an altercation and he was hit with this object and when they talk to his brother it checks out so they leave it alone and just file away these photographs. Investigators do end up with a search warrant and they go out to the chopper auto body and they start looking around and they're looking for a crime scene you know at this time we have luminol so they're looking is there a space that is more exceptionally clean than another you know what's laying around they get to looking, and in the trunk of Garrison's car is a spool of copper wire. Now remember, Justin's head was tied to a rock with copper wire. So they start looking around the auto body shop for something that could mimic the tool marks on the end of the wire. So it had been snipped off, and they were looking for a tool that could recreate that same mark. They have no luck, but they, in the end, they do take a sample of this copper wire and add it to evidence, which is brilliant, by the way. They get a hold of GM and they start talking to them and they find out that they make miles of this wire. So pinpointing it down to a specific spool is virtually impossible in 1989. So another dead end. Well, they don't give up. Investigators then go over to Garrison's house and they start spraying luminol because the garage, there was no place that looked like it had been freshly cleaned. So they needed to figure out where Justin's body had been dismembered. 
And they go to the garrison home and they start spraying luminol and nothing's showing. There's no bright light of body fluids coming up anywhere. However, they do find a stack of back issues of the American Journal of Surgery. Justin's body was dismembered, but owning those magazines, not a crime. So they just go on about their way. They don't take anything. Garrison's house, his house is clean, the auto body. But in the end, investigators know they have their guy. They just got to figure out how they're going to tie him to the disappearance and murder of this child. Well, after all of this is going on, Garrison gets a little spooked. He packs up his family and they move off to Charlotte, North Carolina. Investigators in Tulsa are grasping at straws. And so they get with prosecutors and they show them the evidence they have and they're hoping that there will be charges filed. However, prosecution comes back and they say, you don't have anything definitive. All of this evidence is circumstantial. We are not going to file charges against him for the murder of Justin Wiles. Garrison has split town. And with no other suspect and no other leads, Justin Wall's case grows cold. Now, Garrison, he's, he's not some saintly man after this. He's not. In May of 1990, Garrison is charged with filing a false insurance claim back in Oklahoma. In October of 1989, just a few short months after Justin's murder, Garrison claims that he had some furniture and other items stolen from his home. In actuality, Garrison gave these away to a friend, then turned around and made a false claim, hoping to collect the insurance money. And that's a no-no. Can't do that. Don't do that, by the way. I don't recommend it. See, too many people try to do this and end up in jail anyway, so don't try to defraud your insurance company, please. Anyways, Garrison ends up arrested in Charlotte. He's extradited back to Oklahoma to stand for the false claims. And in October of 1990, he is convicted of filing these false claims and is given an 18-month sentence in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary. He's got to serve time in Oklahoma. Now, meanwhile, Tulsa PD have kind of gathered everything they had up on, on Justin they weren't giving up on him, but they had nothing credible once they couldn't pinpoint Wayne Garrison to being at the lake the day that Justin had gone missing. So they file his stuff away in a binder and it goes into a room and nothing is done. By June of 1991, Garrison is released from the Oklahoma State Penitentiary and is able to move back to North Carolina. We're going to go fast in this timeline right here, so stick with me. In 1994, Detective Ron Beaver received a phone call. It was a heads up from an investigator out of Cabarrus County Sheriff's Department. I probably just butchered that, and I'm sorry for all of you out in North Carolina. I apologize. Wayne Garrison, who is now living in Detective Beaver's jurisdiction, had had a past and a reputation that followed him. They told him that Garrison had been the prime suspect in the murder of Justin Wilds back in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and as a juvenile had killed two young children. Now, for Beaver, he's blindsided. You know, he's got this, this guy who has a history 
of killing children and it's in his jurisdiction. And so the one of the ways he is going to get ahead of this is he lets the entire department know about Garrison. They, he tells them, you know, about being the suspect in the murder case that is still, you know, an active investigate. Well, not it's a cold case, but it's an investigation. Nobody had ever had charges brought up against them for the death of Justin Wiles. And Garrison was the prime suspect. And then he lets them know about his juvenile past. And I'm not sure when having your juvenile records sealed started really kicking in. It's not something I researched. But I find it interesting that everybody knew, no matter where he went, Garrison, at 13 years old, 14 years old, had taken the lives of two young children. Typically, when people grow out of the juvenile age range, they seek to have that record sealed and eventually expunged if they can. But Garrison, he didn't do that. I would have. So he briefs everybody and then he instructs them that if any children in their jurisdiction goes missing, they are to get with Beaver immediately so that they can see if it at all ties back to Garrison. So in 1995, Detective Beaver learns that Garrison is becoming an active member in the Boy Scouts. This is a no-no. No. Mm -mm. His son, he was a scout member, and so Garrison had started volunteering, and he would be going on these camping retreats with young children. He would be involved in some of the things that they do, like soapbox derbies. Couldn't say that correctly. He would be doing, he was just very active with the children, and you know his past, you know his reputation, and so you're already on alert, and then you learn he's with these young boys, and that just heightens it. Everybody's on edge. They're just waiting for the other foot to drop. In 1996, just a year later, they learn that there's a boy that has gone missing. Garrison's 11-year-old neighbor boy had been reported missing. And immediately, Beaver goes to Garrison's home. They explain to him, you know, the seriousness of this child missing and that he was to be on notice that they would be bringing canines into the area. And that way they could kind of follow the scent of where this young child went. He also said that helicopters would be canvassing the area looking for any kind of disrupted ground or foliage or whatever. And Garrison just plays it cool. Okay. And Beaver knows. He's like, no, you're way too calm and collected. You were not shocked when I told you what we were going to do. So he's like, well, I'm going to go talk to your son. But he does not notify Garrison of this. They head out to Garrison's son's school where he is currently enrolled and they are planning on talking to the child. However, while en route, dispatch gets with Beaver and says, hey, we found him. Garrison. Wayne Garrison found him. It's a miracle. I think with Beaver going to Garrison, it wasn't so much to be like, oh my God, we have a missing child. No, it was I'm putting you on notice. I'm going to do everything in my power to bring this child home. And if you're part of it, I'm taking you down. 
I think that's more of why Beaver went over to the home immediately and told him, you know, what their strategy was into locating this boy. Beaver flips a U-turn and he heads back and he sees the boys being recovered and he talks to Garrison and he says this, he says, quote, Garrison was so overjoyed and I will never forget this. He hugged my neck. End quote. Garrison was the hero. He saved the day. He saved this poor boy was found and it's a miracle. Well, they get this child down to the sheriff's department and they start to try to interview him, but they notice he is having a very hard time staying awake. He's super drowsy, super lethargic, can't really focus. So they get him down to the nurse in the jailhouse, and she immediately says, get him to the hospital. He has something in his system. So they get this young boy down to the hospital, and they run a test. They find two substances in the boy's blood, and both of them are very powerful, potent painkillers. And so eventually, the body and the liver clean the blood and get rid of the effects of these drugs and the boy is able to talk to police and he says that Garrison had kind of talked him into running away from his house. I'm assuming the boy was mad because he was handed down an unfair punishment in his eyes and Garrison being the chipper neighbor that he is with all the local boys being a member of the Boy Scout you know adult leadership the boy felt comfortable going to him and explaining to him how he was, you know, being mistreated. And Garrison's like, you should run away. Hey, I will help you run away. I've got, I got a place for you to hide. And eventually the boy agrees and he runs away from home. And he says that he went to the shed out behind Garrison's house. And when it got dark, Garrison came out and was able to get him into the home. And when they got into the house, he was given two red pills in the bathroom. And the boy described the bathroom and there was like a garden-like tub. And it had these built-in shelves just above it in the corner. Well, Garrison had rigged it to where he could open that like a secret hideaway. And he put the boy in this crawl space. Very narrow, very dark, very scary. He closes the, the shelving. but this poor boy just continues to cry. It's terrifying. He's taking these drugs. He, he feels weird. It's just not working. So Garrison lets him out of the crawl space and then he wraps his arms around the boy's neck and kind of puts him in like a choke hold or like a sleeper hold as a method to calm, air quote, the boy down. And so the child then tells Detective Beaver that when he came to knock on the door of Garrison's home and kind of put him on notice, the boy was peeking around the corner and could see Detective Beaver talking to Garrison. But he wasn't supposed to come out and make himself known. So he kind of had to peek around the corner to see what was going on. And then all of a sudden, you know, Garrison decided the boy needed to go home. So police, they execute a search warrant on the Garrison's home. And I feel super horrible for his wife because 
her husband just makes bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And she's subjected to whatever comes their way because he cannot control his urges. So her house is being ransacked once again. And inside of the shed out back, they find a bunch of candy wrappers. And then they also find a pillow, but it has the boys who went missing. It has his little brother's initials on it. So immediately it ties it all back to this child. And then in the house, inside the bathroom, they find these muddy footprints in Garrison's bathroom that fit this child. And Garrison says, well, the boy broke into his home. He stole the medication. You know, I don't know what's going on. He's just a troubled child. Well, back in Tulsa, Sergeant Mike Huff is in his first week of being a supervisor in the homicide department. And he gets a phone call from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And it's saying... Wayne Garrison has been arrested in North Carolina in the, for the abduction of an 11-year-old boy, and he has pleaded guilty to two counts of giving prescription painkillers to a minor and one count of an abduction to a minor. But, unfortunately, the boy and his family, they decide to stay out of the prosecution, and they don't want to take part in this, therefore... They can only get him for so much time. Garrison is handed a sentence of three and a half years. Tulsa is put on notice. You have three and a half years. Pull out your cold case. See what you can find. Okay, so here we are. And we are in 1996. Technology has advanced. We are starting to see the early stages of like identifying DNA, better fingerprint comparison. We now have these different machines that help us look and see what chemical compounds are of things. So they pull out the binder, they pull out the box of evidence, and they start going through it. And the thing with Justin Wilde's case, and it kept coming back to them over and over, is the back issues of the American Journal of Surgery. That was odd to find inside of the home of a man who ran an auto body shop. And so they kept, for whatever reason, the investigation kept just revolving around that. And it, it was because in the autopsy report, the parts that are that are released, it is said that the dismemberment was made with very clean, even surgical-like precision. So he didn't just hack away at Justin's body. It's almost like he knew what to do. Well, some of these issues talk about amputation and where certain blood vessels are and where certain points are that you need to cut in order for it to be a proper amputation that would allow the patient to go on and still have some quality of life, even with the missing appendage. Okay, well, Justin Wiles's body has been dismembered and mutilated in the very same manner. Okay, this is the thing that stands out for them. But then they start to shoot around some ideas and they are beginning to wonder if Garrison had cannibalized 
Justin and Craig because they are never able to find the dismembered penises of either boy. Now, Justin Wiles, from what I understand, was never fully recovered and it was only bits and pieces of his body, but his torso was recovered and the penis was dismembered and nobody knows where it was. Craig was killed in a very short time. His penis was removed and nobody can find it either. So it's speculated that Garrison may have dined out on these two pieces of body. I don't know if it's true. It would explain the bite marks found all over Dana's body. That was, that was really weird when I came across it in my research. I could not figure out why that happened other than that was sexually motivated. Okay. And maybe, I mean, this all could be part of his fantasy and, and give him that sexual release that he needs. Who knows? Detective Charlie Folks, he is part of this, this team of investigators. And he pulls out the photograph that Garrison had volunteered to take back in 1889. And it's of his right forearm. It's that bruise. They've come full circle. So they get to looking and one of the guys was like, hey, that kind of looks like a bite mark. Well, this is not the best photograph in the world, but if you squint your eyes just right, you can kind of make out the different impressions of teeth. And you can see that is a bite mark. Holy crap, how did they miss that? So they go out to a forensic odontologist and they, 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 they know this is our smoking gun, you know. The forensic odontologist is Dr. Brian Hers, and he works for Oklahoma's forensic odontology group. And so he agrees to look at the photograph. He takes some measurements. He gets, you know, kind of pinpoints things out. And he comes back and he's like, definitely, this is a bite mark and it came from a human. And so he tells Tulsa, we need to get an impression of Justin's teeth. The Tulsa PD, they go to Dorothy and they get her permission to exhume his body and an impression is made of Justin's teeth. And at this time, Tulsa PD comes together and they replace Justin's casket before they put him back in the ground. And I thought that was very endearing. Now, Dr. Brian Hers, he now has these impressions made of Justin's teeth. And there's something very peculiar about these impressions. Justin's teeth had worn in such a fashion that it was very unique to his bite. The way his front tooth set on the bottom teeth was irregular. It was almost as if the child had a nervous tick where he kind of grinded his teeth just a little in that area or would clinch down, causing there to be wear on his adult teeth. You know, Dr. Hers, he takes the impression and then he gets some volunteers out of his dental hygienist and he attaches the impression teeth to this clamp. And it works in the same manner as a human jaw where the mandible is movable while the maxillary is stationary. And so he takes the forearm of these dental hygienists and he bites them essentially with Justin's impressions. 
And when he takes photographs of their arms and he lines it up with the photograph of Wayne Garrison's arm, we have a match. It's perfect. He even fits the unique wear between the front teeth and the bottom teeth in that impression. It's a match. They finally have something that puts Garrison with Justin at some point over the period of four days, five days. Because, you know, a bruise, think about it, it's, it's around for what, five to seven days, 10 at most, if it's a really bad bruise that may have broke skin. So it's still fresh. Tulsa police, they think, well, hell, we've figured it out. We've unraveled this entire case. We've nailed it. We have him. And they go to prosecution. Prosecution comes back and says, get me more. And so the investigators are like, holy crap, what are we going to do now? Well, guess what we still have in our possession? They have that copper wire. Now, with the advances in the forensics, they are able to test more than just the toll marks. And so the forensic investigator, he puts this piece of copper wire under the microscope and he just scrutinizes every little thing. And he comes across this little black smudge on the wire. Now, he knows from experience of working inside of his own vehicle that you get this black stuff all over your hand when you're running wire. And so he calls around to a couple stereo installment places and they're like, oh yeah, that's called dum-dum or, or body caulk or strip caulk, whatever you want to call it. I'm going to call it dum-dum because I think that's great and I love saying it. So he's found that this wire has a dum-dum on it. So he runs this dum-dum through the XRF, which is the X-ray fluorescent spectroscopy machine. And it offers investigators a new way of identifying certain materials because it spits out the chemical compound of the substance it is testing. So the forensics, they get the chemical makeup of the dum-dum and they get with local body shops and nail down a few specific types of this. And they start running through these different brands of dum-dum and eventually they nail down the specific brand of dum-dum that was found on that copper wire. Well, guess what? That dum-dum was found inside of the chopper's body shop. So now investigators have the bite mark coupled with the copper wire and that dum-dum chemical makeup so they can prove it came from that spoil of wire and the two match because they also had checked the wire that was attached to his head. Tulsa prosecution, the DA office, goes ahead and grants charges. Wayne Henry Garrison was charged with murder of Justin Wiles from June 20th, 1989. Detective Roy Helm and Sergeant Mike Huff get to fly out to North Carolina. And on October 22nd of 1999, Wayne Garrison is paroled from the North Carolina Penitentiary. And when he steps foot into the free world, Roy Helm and Mike Huff are there waiting to fit him with a shiny new pair of bracelets. Wayne Garrison is arrested for the murder of Justin Wiles and is extradited back to Oklahoma. On November 15, 2001, Wayne Garrison stands trial for the death of Justin Wiles. 
with Judge Jesse Harris presiding. On November 16th, Wayne Garrison's friend Rick Collins testifies against Wayne Garrison for the prosecution based off of Wayne's appearance on the day of June 20th, 1989. Prosecution asks Collins, how did he look to you? Collins replies, he had a lot of dirt all over him. Looks like he had been wrestling around in the dirt. Prosecution then asks, describe the smell that you associated with Mr. Garrison. And Collins originally testifies that Garrison smelled like death. However, Judge Harris ordered that that testimony be stricken from the record and jurors were not allowed to use that piece of information when they went into deliberation. Collins was asked to rephrase his answer, so he came back with, he smelled like he had gutted an animal, an extremely bad odor. Here's the part of Collins' testimony that really kind of threw me. After Garrison moved out to Charlotte, he called his friend Collins and said to him, quote, you better forget what you know because you have a daughter, end quote. It should have been right there after that phone call that Collins got with Tulsa PD. However, we never know as a parent how we will react when somebody threatens our children. And so I do not hold it against him for not coming forward. Um, however, I applaud him for standing up and testifying against his friend Garrison, regardless of that threat. I do believe that this testimony did help the jury come to their conclusion. Collins also testified to the fact that several times during the week of June 20th, 1989, Garrison was acting very strange and nervous. This concluded most of his testimony as not that I don't have every word verbatim from the trial. Um, this was the most damning testimony I came across, and to me it stuck out the most because it really gave jurors and true crime nerds like us an insight of what Garrison struggled with during that entire week that he was kind of under the thumb of Tulsa PD and the investigation. He wasn't calm, cool, and collected as he appeared. He was nervous. He was scared. And we know this because, I mean, he packed his family up and moved them, what, six states across the country to get away from this, thinking if he puts distance between us, that it didn't really happen. And this goes back to Garrison's concrete thinking of when he put his cousin Dana under the crawl space, out of sight, out of mind, didn't happen. He thought with the distance, same concept. Detective Beaver flew into Tulsa to testify in Garrison's murder trial. He testified to what happened during the abduction of the boy that was his neighbor back in North Carolina. Eventually, this testimony was stricken from the record as well, and the jury was told that they could not use this piece of information during their deliberations. Garrison's trial lasted 12 days. And unfortunately, his prior crimes, the, you know, the rep reputation that preceded him wherever he went was not allowed to be spoken of, mentioned, hinted at during this trial. But jury would only deliberate for six hours before they returned to the court with a verdict of guilty. During Garrison's sentencing hearing, 
prosecution was allowed to now talk about Garrison and his past crimes. So not only did we talk about Dana, four-year-old, being strangled, Craig, three-year-old, being suffocated, and the abduction of the 11-year-old boy from North Carolina, we, they got to learn all of that during the sentencing hearing. Therefore, the jury only deliberated for two hours, and they came back and handed down the sentence of death for the murder of Justin Wiles. And we have talked about this before when it comes to trials and then gets into the sentencing phase. In order for a jury to hand down the death sentence, it has to be unanimous. It can't be 11 to 1. It can't be 6 to 5. It has to be 12 to 0. It has to be unanimous. And it only took them two hours to know what they were going to do for Garrison. On December 19th of 2001, Wayne Garrison was asked if he had anything he would like to say before being formally sentenced to death by lethal injection. And Garrison says only one line to the judge, I did not kill Justin Wiles. In 2004, Wayne Garrison and his new attorney filed an appeal with the Oklahoma Courts of Appeal. And it was under the circumstances that he had incompetent counsel during the sentencing phase and he was requesting a new sentencing hearing. He was not denying claim of guilt for the murder of Justin Wiles. No, he was out to save his ass. He didn't want to die. And it, I, I find this funny when people are handed down the death sentence. It's like a turn of personality. All of a sudden, they don't want to die. How, how could somebody do that to them? You know, you have this impending day. There's not a date set at the sentencing hearing. You are sentenced to death. You are allowed to go through your appeals like everybody else. And once you've exhausted all of that, then they will come back and will set a date of execution. Okay, so it's not like he knew that on December 4th of 2006, he was to be executed. He didn't know that. However, knowing that somebody was going to come in and take his life from him was too damn scary. And the chicken shit that he is filed an appeal and unfortunately won. Therefore, the court handed down that he would be granted a new sentencing hearing under the circumstance that his defense team was incompetent during that part of the trial. Because of this, Wayne Garrison's death was automatically excommunicated to life without the possibility of parole until a new sentencing hearing could be set. But Wayne Garrison, being the clever man that he is, reached out with prosecution and they struck a deal. He would waive his right to the new sentencing trial and the state of Oklahoma would not push for death and they would offer him life in prison without the possibility of parole. Garrison now serves his time in a Lawton Correctional Facility about five hours away from where the crime was actually committed. He will be there for the rest of his natural life. Garrison thought he had beat the system. 
The boy who had been abducted decided not to partake in the prosecution. Only three and a half years of his life was taken from him, a small price to pay for the rush of adrenaline. The gate slammed shut behind him, the first breath of fresh air, tainted by the newest of charges to come his way. Two detectives all the way from Tulsa, Oklahoma, were there to welcome him from the last few years inside, there to put handcuffs on him, ultimately leading him to what would be known as his new life, and to remind him of a name that he was sure would stay in the past, Justin Wiles. A mother awaits for the word that Wayne Henry Garrison is in custody and has been charged with the murder of her young teenage son. A bruise on his arm, one he thought he had explained away, was part of the key factors that would convince a jury of his peers that he, Wayne Garrison, was nothing more than a stone-cold killer. He is the second out of three serial killers to emerge out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. An ineffective counsel would allow the Oklahoma Court of Appeals to grant Garrison a new sentencing trial. Lethal injection that loomed over his head was to be replaced with life. He has a lifetime to think about the young lives he took from this world. We can only hope that the rumors of what happens to child killers inside the four cinder block walls of prison are true. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we look at how what appears to be a small bruise unravels a story so grim that you cannot believe it until it is put all together. As always, I will leave you with one last line. The dead cannot cry out for justice. It is a duty of the living to do so for them. Much love, the true crime librarian. <laughs>